Hello, and welcome to episode number two of Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. Today I'll be talking with documentary filmmaker Tim O'Donnell. Tim and his producing partner and friend since junior high, John Mercer, are the driving forces behind Pixella Pictora and Pixella Pictora Films, their branded content and documentary film companies, respectively. A sampling of their films reveals a drive to tell the stories of often marginalized individuals facing challenges of all sorts, physical, psychological, and often challenges to a person's very identity. As Emmy-nominated and award-winning creatives, their films have been seen on ESPN, ABC, PBS, at the Sundance Film Festival, and events around the world. Their film Life Without Basketball was recognized for its contributions to global sport by Human Rights Watch, and a short film adapted from the same body of work was distributed with CNN Films and Uninterrupted. Their feature documentary film, Not a War Story, opened at number one on iTunes Documentaries in 2018 and premiered at the Academy of Motion Pictures. Tim's latest documentary film is called The House We Lived In, a highly personal account of his father's journey of recovery and re-emergence after sustaining a serious brain injury in 2011. Filmmakers Collaborative is proud to call Tim and Pixella Pictures FC members, and we encourage media makers of all stripes to visit us at filmmakerscollaborative.org to discover the full range of programs and services we offer. And now, my conversation with Tim O'Donnell. Just a little background. Tim and I first crossed paths, I think about two, two or so years ago, I had the privilege of having a conversation with Tim and his uh, producing partner, uh, John Mercer, around a film called um, uh, Life Without Basketball. And uh, we'll talk more about that film later on. Fascinating film, award-winning film. And it was just, it was a great conversation. And it was one of those conversations that when you have it, you realize you're talking to folks that have that sort of, that elusive quality of ambition, know-how, and vision. And it really comes through in all of the work. And it certainly came through in that conversation. Some time went on and turns out that Tim and I were living in the same town. We live in a small little town about 40 miles north of Boston. And that's been fantastic, being able to just hang out, talk about life in general and filmmaking and raising kids and the whole shebang. So, Tim, awesome to be speaking with you today. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. And uh, if there's a way to hear myself blushing, I'm blushing right now, the things you said, because those are really important to me. Um, So, you know... It's, uh, it's really cool how it all worked out where, you know, I, I didn't know where I was going to move and we were very happy to stumble upon Amesbury, Massachusetts. And, uh, we've been here for a full year now and been great getting to be friends this past year. So uh, thanks for certainly a welcome addition. And as luck would have it, our blush filter is on. So I'm I'm (laughs) pouring through anyone right now. So, so Tim, um, I'm I'm sure you're familiar with the term elevator statement. If you're not, I'll tell you what, you know, you know what it is. There's this concept in marketing sort of advertising that everybody's supposed to have an elevator statement where you can kind of say who you are, what you're all about, 
in the time it takes to ride from the ground floor to the whatever floor. Let's let, let's call it the the penthouse, okay? What's Tim O'Donnell's <laughs> elevator statement? Oh man, hard hitting questions right from the jump. That's how we. Were. I uh, you know it's funny that thing is such a longer um, answer for me because um, I don't really have a elevator pitch for myself. I feel like conversation always kind of happens organically. So depending on who I'm talking to, it's kind of a little different. Absolutely. Um, but if I had to, if I was pressed, uh, <laughs> if somebody, you know, uh, hit level four and, and I only had, you know, 40 seconds, I'm a filmmaker and I never knew it. And I had a ton of opportunity that allowed me excuses to pick up a camera and use it. I'm a wrestler. I wrestled in high school and college and I coached for six years. And um, if anything, the reason I keep making films and, and working and being able to work as a filmmaker is because I have that wrestler mentality, which is, you know, you don't need talent. You just need time. And, yeah. Uh, well, I, I might argue with you there, but you, you certainly <laughs> just, have the talent and the tenacity yeah, and, and yeah. that comes through. So you're a product of the greater Boston area, correct? Yeah, we grew up in Lowell, Massachusetts till I was about 10. And then we jumped just over the border in Hudson, New Hampshire. Okay. Uh, and, you know, grew up uh, there. And I've always stayed in New England. Um, went out Western Mass for college, lived out there for a bit, uh, and then found myself back in Boston about 10 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. So I've always been sort of close to, to uh, the Boston kind of area. Can you remember the first movie? that hit you like in the solar plexus where you, you left that movie and said, wow, this was consciousness altering. This was visionary. This opened up a portal that I didn't know existed, or maybe that never happened for you. It, it's happened on a couple different levels. It's funny when you um, think back to, you know, like films don't have to be like a good experience, right? They could just be like very, they can just stay with you. Yeah. Not necessarily like you, you'll leave and you're like, oh, I'm entertained and this is awesome. And, you know, I remember watching Eraserhead when I was like, you know, young, under 15, let's call it. My, I had, a, I had a aunt and uncle who loved weird movies. So uh, I got introduced to, to David Lynch. And I remember watching like 20 minutes of it maybe. And of course I left and it was, it was, to me it was weird, but I just had a feeling the next day. Yeah. And I think it was, I, I honestly think it was anxiety a little bit, but, uh, you know, but that was so powerful that, yeah. that film, you know, that experience. But once I got a little older, probably like 18, 19, I feel like Requiem. I don't know why I'm, th I'm thinking Requiem for a Dream. Sure. Aronofsky. Seeing, yeah, just kind of uh, made you feel um, mm -hmm. something that was different and brought you in in a different way. Um, but, you know, it's, I, again, man, depending on like tomorrow, you ask me that same question. I might come up with a couple other different ideas, but uh, yeah. Well, you're, a, you're, you're a visual art. You've been a visual artist uh, for, for a long time. Am I, am, I'm correct in that, right? You were, you were art teacher. Yeah. I was obsessed with painting and you know, I think it kind of goes back to when I was a kid, I, I was lucky to grow up in Lowell and there was the, uh, you know, large population, uh, Cambodian population. And the majority of my friends were really talented artists. It was just more part of the culture, I think in, in Cambodia. And so, um, you know, I just started drawing because of that. Nobody else in my family really drew. And then when I moved to Hudson, um, I don't know, I had some issues with asthma. I was inside a little bit more and I just kept drawing. And then, you know, um, it just kind of stuck with me. And it was really funny trying to apply to, 
uh, for college, uh, I applied to, um, I think I applied to 12 schools because I really didn't know where to go because I wanted to, I was a wrestler. You know, I, re- I wrestled in high school. I was, uh, you know, I knew I wanted to wrestle in college. Now I wanted to do something with art. And there's not a lot of art schools that have wrestling programs. Yeah. So I was lucky to find art education, which, you know, I always kind of liked working with kids too. So it, it was perfect. And, uh, you know, I was lucky to, to teach art for six years at Springfield, Mass. At Springfield Central High School, had an incredible group of kids uh, over there. And, you know, one day I'd love to go back to it, but I, um, I sort of shifted everything to video. You know, I stopped painting. My last painting was like 10, 11 years ago. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, but it's, um, it's, it's been a great transition to have that background and think about making films a little differently, maybe, you know, and just setting up an image. Do you think if you went back and looked at some of your paintings from a decade ago or so, you would see any, I don't know, correlation between the, the art that you were depicting through your painting and what your brain sees when you look through a camera or when you get in an editing room? Yeah. I mean, like, I think like we're all, we're all interested in different things. We can all like, we're all biased, right? We all kind of have these lenses. We look at things like, you know, Requiem for a Dream. Somebody watches that and there's a lot of things they just immediately relate to their life because of their experiences. We're always kind of doing that thing. And like with, with painting, you know, I was always sort of obsessed with like how we remember things and how, uh, I always remember early on that I could hear my dad, um, clapping and yelling for me during the wrestling matches. And I remember like, seeing it through the viewfinder. I don't remember like being on the mat, but my memory has been sort of replaced with that visual and that auditory thing. Okay. And so a lot of my early paintings were investigations of memory. So there's a lot of blurred kind of stuff. I was obsessed with Francis Bacon. He's this great uh, painter and, uh, you know, and how he would, you know, some things would be in focus and others would blur and, uh, you know, so, you know, that, that kind of spilled over a bit into filmmaking, uh, for sure. Um, but you know, I, I, and I'm not trying to be like, give me a compliment, but I was not a good painter. I was not like, like I I taught art and I'm, you know, I, I made decent paintings, but like, I, it was always a struggle. I never, I wasn't, super duper gifted as an artist, uh, okay. it was labor. It was always laboring, uh, looking back at painting. I don't really miss it, honestly, because it was such a, it's such a challenge. It's, it's frustrating. We're also like hard on ourselves about art. So, um, do you remember when, um, you kind of gave yourself permission to think of yourself as a filmmaker? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, I definitely, re- uh, you know, this concept of, um, imposter syndrome yeah you know has been definitely a part of my start as a filmmaker because i you know i i again like i wanted the art life i wanted to think of myself as a painter and i you know went to grad school uh i was i got into mass art um the mfa program there and I wanted to be a painter. I wanted to be a painter. I wanted to be a painter. And luckily I worked with, um, some, some great professors who sort of boil you down to your core, uh, which is painful. Uh, you know, there's definitely folks, you know, and this is all adults. This is all folks, you know, I was probably the youngest person there. I was 26, I think at the time, 27. 
And so it's, you know, uh, a group ranging from folks in their late 20s to folks in their, you know, 60s, 70s, who are getting that terminal degree in art. You know, it's kind <laughs> of the, the pinnacle, right? It's yeah. like, right. Um, as these folks kept pushing me and pushing me and pushing me, um, it turned out, uh, you know, I've been making videos this whole time. You know, I've been making videos when I was a kid, uh, you know, through all the experiences growing up. My dad always had a camera. You know, I'd, I'd steal the camera and make a stupid film, you know, and, and it never seemed like art. And so, you know, in that grad program, I, I ended up um, switching to video and a uh, real pivotal moment. And uh, I don't know, like, it just, uh, it never felt like I was a quote unquote filmmaker because I didn't go to film school. I didn't, you know, I didn't train in this academic way. So like the first five, six years of making films, I never referred to myself as a filmmaker. I think now it's just kind of like, I don't really care about the label. Right. Uh, it's right. just, okay, let's just get to the point. I make films, I'm a filmmaker, cool. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a whole n- other, like, I don't know, continuum. There's a whole spectrum. There's connotations with that word, you know? And so well, it's, I, it, it's interesting yeah. because, you, you know, there, there are all these, um, uh, external markers that people can wait their whole lives for to uh, before they, they kind of, you know, confidently assert what they are, you know, well, that grad program didn't, uh, you know, didn't bestow me with the title of filmmaker or artist. And then this, you know, the um, whatever the mentor didn't or the, the quote unquote filmmaking community. But then you realize that all of that, it's actually kind of silly. Mm. And, and I think one of the, I think one of the really wonderful things about um, the filmmaking world these days is that the, the entrance fee to calling yourself a filmmaker is simply the artful execution of storytelling. Mm. And, and the, and the, the category is so broad that it, it feels to me like, I always feel like if pursued, art will emerge. And, you know, art's a big, potentially pretentious word. But, mm. you know, we know it when we're, we know it when we're in the sort of the presence of it. And my, I think everybody has different definitions of art. But my definition of art, whether it's a three-minute song or a three-hour movie or a 300-page book, something has fired up these neurons in my brain that said, oh, wow that's a different way of looking at that or thinking about that or making that, you know, that, that harmony or that sound. Um, and I, I just sort of feel that with the advent of um, some of the technologies around filmmaking and editing and distribution, um, it, it thankfully allows people to bypass some of those uh, artificial self-reinforcing gatekeepers out there. Totally. Totally. It's, uh, it's a great time to be making films, you know, uh, it's, it's opened up so many beautiful voices, voices that otherwise, you know, financially, whatever, you know, there's so many areas where you're getting blocked in the old school way of making films that, yeah, you're getting perspective. I mean, an iPhone can, can do things that, you know, a red camera can't. Um, and sometimes that's just the immediacy as something something's happening you know yeah. and uh 
Uh, so I'm all about that. And like, in terms of art, man, like, I, like it's the same mentality as when I was teaching, you know, I started teaching art uh, at the high school level when I was 21 and I wore a shirt and tie every single day because I was 21, you know, yeah, and like exactly. some of the kids were like the, the same age as me. Right. Like I want, and I'm, I was 25 for like, you know, the first couple of years. They're like, mister, weren't you 25 last year? But uh, anyways, like, but it added to that, like art is a practice and you have to work hard at it. And the, the luck will come later, the skill, the talent, whatever you want to call it, that'll happen later. Just it's inevitable. And again, it kind of goes back to wrestling. Wrestling's in these like funny sports where you talk to a wrestler. Most of us, it's a work will eventually lead to success kind of mentality. Yep. And that's a huge spectrum because of course, like just because you work hard every day doesn't mean you're gonna be a state champ, but you do see a lot of, um, a lot more payback, you know, and I, I played basketball and I played all these other sports and I just couldn't get good at it no matter how, how much I, I practice. But with wrestling, it's sort of one will against the other. Right. And all you got to do is work harder and build up all that things. And of course it's opportunity and chance. And there's a lot of other things that come into play, but that basis of, uh, that men- mentality, um, has helped me tremendously in art and then in, in filmmaking and, and just in, in, in life for sure. You know, there's, a, there's almost a, uh, a subgenre of uh, artists who wrestled. Um, mm-hmm. I think about like the novels of John Irving. I don't know if you're, fam- if you're familiar. Oh, with yeah. um, wrestling plays right. such a huge uh, role in, in his novels, particularly the earlier ones. He's, he's got a great... Um, He's got a great early novel called The 158-Pound Marriage. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, the novel that put him on the, on the map uh, was The World According to Garp, where Garp, among other things, is a wrestling coach. And um, it's, it's just, it's, fa- it's fascinating how formative it is, how, as you just alluded to, it provides these lifelong kind of metaphors for, you know, it's, it's, it's one-on-one, I would imagine, you know, it's very, um, you, you've got to be driven in, in, a, in a particular way. Because it's, you know, it's not a glamour sport. You're not, gonna no. get a, you're not, not getting a stadium of, you know, 65,000 people cheering you on. No, yeah. It's, it's, a funny, uh, it's a funny sport. It's a great, it's, it's one of those weird things that just sticks with you. And I, you know, you'll have conversations with uh, folks who are 40, 50, 60 years old, and they remember everything. And they're sort of hung up on it a little bit. I mean, I am. I'll, I'm the first to tell you some of the things I didn't achieve that I wanted to. And it's, um, you know, there's so many other things to talk about, right? Like I'm a, I'm a grown human and I have, I'm married <laughs> and I have two kids and there's all these awesome things. But I'd be lying if I didn't tell you there's some nights I think about it. You know, I think about the high school match, the college match. But um, I think it, because it's so like, and, and you think you relate it to film too. It's so uh, experiential. It's so like, it, it's, it was such a challenge. Like it, I uh, never felt pain like that. I never felt um, pushed, you know, yeah. uh, that saying of, feeling like you just um, had a train run through you and you're, but you're still standing. It's just a weird thing, you know, um, and doing it again and again and again, it, it, it for some reason just kind of stays with you. But, uh, and I've been lucky to make films. Uh, I've been able to make some films about wrestlers too. I, I made this film. My first film actually uh, is like 12 years ago, uh, 11 years ago, maybe. And it was my first, yeah, it was my first, time 
going back to what you're saying, like when you let yourself, I wouldn't call myself a filmmaker, but I let myself kind of like, I'm going to make a film as yeah. opposed to just like picking up a camera and having fun. It's like, right. I'm going to do this. And it was, you know, I, I was teaching at the time in Springfield and uh, I followed um, an athlete who just graduated and was in community college. And uh, this kid, this amazing kid named George, George Hargrove. And, uh, you know, I followed him for his first year and he made it to the national finals. Um, and it was like a 30 something minute film. Uh, and did you, you know, follow him because you had some hunch about him? Did, did he, did he have an interesting backstory? What was the, what was the impetus for you to follow this particular wrestler? It kind of, it kind of just followed along the line of like what, how I grew up and my family. So my dad often would film us and take us to tournaments and buy us t-shirts and this and that. George had an amazing mother uh, and community. Um, his father died early on and like a good amount of kids in Springfield, you know, there's a lot of financial difficulty. There's, um, quite a bit of crime and violence, you know, it's listed when I was there, it was listed in the top 10 most dangerous cities in the U S and, but it's, there's amazing, it's, there's amazing people. There's amazing families. There's amazing culture. Uh, and you need to know that. Because it's not just a dangerous city, blah, 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 blah. It's an amazing city. It just happens to have poverty and crime. Anyways, I, uh, I just started showing up to his matches, like, like the weird old, you know, or I was young at the time, but, uh, you know, the, the high school coach following his, his wrestler now in college. And, you know, I just, it made sense to have a, a camera. And I was in grad school and it was at about the moment where everyone was saying, Tim, I think you should make videos. Um, stop painting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so I tried it. I let myself do that. And, um, you know, I think the story really is, is George, uh, you know, chance and opportunity, man. Like his dad was a great dude. Um, just got caught up and was dealing, ended up getting shot and killed right, right in front of his house, uh, when he was like nine. And, wow. uh, you know, when I was hanging out with George, you know, there was lots of moments where George could have went, followed the path of his dad. And it really went back to the community, you know, even though the community in in some ways um, was the, was problematic for his dad, the community for, for George, whatever chance and opportunity uh, became the reason he succeeded through sport, through, you know, there's so many factors that, you know, made George so successful and I'll never forget, you know, it's, it's, it was already a relationship of me and George. We were very close, but you know, it's in the film and I'm, I'm in his bedroom and he said, do you want to see my dad? And I said, yeah, that, that, that's fine. I didn't know what he meant, but he pulled out his drawer and he had the ashes right there and he pulled them out for me. Wow. And it was one of those moments, you know, with a camera that, um, you know, uh, he trusted me and, you know, in the edit I had to, make sure I was always thinking of George and, and his dad and his family and how to, how to portray that moment. But one of those filmmaking moments that, you know, you just don't, you're never going to forget that moment <clears throat> and that trust in that, you know, um, I remember we screened the film a bunch of times. We, you know, we, we raised money for him. He ended up getting a full scholarship to a uh, four-year school uh, part of the part because of the film. Fantastic. And it, you know, it's like filmmaking can be a little more than just trying to tell a story, you know, it's relationships, you know, it's, um, it's an excuse to hang out with people too that you love and care about, or you yeah. don't even know you love and care about any uh, yet. But, uh, 
you know, um, it, what was the name of that film, Tim? It's called George wrestling with resistance. Okay. Uh, and then, you know, a bunch of years later I made another wrestling film. Um, and, uh, the other spectrum, a coach who was coaching for, uh, I followed him for his 50th season. <laughs> um, and, uh, he's a wild guy, but I talked to, um, uh, wrestlers of his from each decade. Uh, and they oh, all had the awesome. same, the same yeah. story. And, uh, it was really neat, but he's still, he's still coaching too. It's like his 50th, 50, 54th season, I think right now, 55th. Where, where does he coach? <laughs> he coaches in Lowell, uh, okay. Lowell, Massachusetts. So yeah. he's like, his name's George Bossy. The, the, the film's Bossy wrestling with resist, or I'm sorry, Bossy, the power of a coach. Okay. Um, and you know, it's, uh, he, he's quite a character. He's one of the all time winningest uh, high school coaches in the country. And, uh, you know, he's still on the mat physically wrestling with the kids as an 80 year old man. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. I love those stories. I love those stories. And you, and you hear about them. It's funny. You hear about them a lot at the high school coaching level. I remember when I was in high school, we had this football coach that you would have thought came out of central casting. His name was Joe Hogue. Joe Hogue. And he played for the, whatever the Pittsburgh team was before they were the Steelers. And he talked like he, 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 <laughs> he gargled Drano every morning. Right. And, you know, this would be a guy that, you know, I think he thought less of you if you put a helmet on, actually, frankly. <laughs> Back in my day. But right. I think this guy coached definitely close to 80. Uh, and it's, it's, it's funny how you, you, you just, you just see that it's, they, they are, they become the sport and they personify the sport. Um, they're fascinating stories. Mm. Where are, where were you career wise when the work that you were doing started getting the attention of the ESPNs of the world? Oh man. Um, uh, so we got very lucky with that. Like, yeah, it's funny. I'll just tell the story. I don't know if, if we have the attention but, <laughs> of them, but, but uh, we were lucky to get their attention a couple of times. So, um, yeah, I was at that point in my life. It's a little over nine years now, but teaching was taking up time with making films, yeah. uh, to be honest. You know, I was slowly doing stuff in the summers and then weekends. And then I was making documentaries while I was teaching. And, you know, I found myself driving a couple times I'd drive after school, uh, after teaching and, and drive to like Providence or wherever the character was, the subject was, it's like two hours from Springfield film all night and then drive back. And it's like 2am and I got to do the whole thing over again. And, you know, it's, uh, it, it started getting, um, uh, like that, like just sort of, uh, I, I saw that I, you know, my interest had shifted. And so I decided to, you know, at the time I was, I was, um, dating Allison, my now wife. And we both were at that point where we wanted to try to move, you know, move in together. And we both were looking at Boston. So it all kind of happened at once. It was, um, it was, you know, the end of the school year was like June, July of, um, 2011 and, you know, made that, that leap and moved into Boston. And it was just like that moment where you're like, uh, I had a couple projects in July. I was just kind of getting settled in terms of like, oh, wow, like September's rolling around. I'm not going to be going back to school like every single year of my life. And uh, something happened. Uh, yeah, my dad, um, my dad who's still alive, he fell one morning and hit his head. And uh, he had a traumatic brain injury. 
Yeah. And that was August uh, 31st of 2011. So it was literally month two of leaving teaching. And I was very lucky to be in Boston because he ended up in Spalding Rehab in Boston. So I spent a lot of time with Todd, uh, my dad, and my whole family did too. Yeah, I started, I, I picked up a camera, you know, uh, and I, I started filming it. And it wasn't meant to be like a short film or anything. And it, it honestly kind of goes back to the ICU room. He was in a coma for eight days. So I kind of pulled that camera out um, just out of self-preservation in some ways or like, you know, I, I, was it therapy? Was it me protecting myself? Was it a, um, I, you know, I don't want to get um, divisive here, but like, you know, sometimes it isn't good. Sometimes it's a little bit of a, um, like, I'm going to, I'm going to feel that pain later. Uh, so the camera acts as a shield. Totally, man. Whether it's good or bad, like sometimes it's therapeutic. Sometimes it's a way to process. Sometimes it's a way to not process. Correct. And, um, and then, so then, you know, because you can't film an ICU, I was filming with a, an, an iPhone camera. They wouldn't let me bring a camera in for good reason. And uh, anyways, we'd always film each other. It, we're an Irish Catholic family, kind of, you know, dark to think back on those days when even my siblings and my mom were encouraging me to film. Um, yeah, and then he, so just, just, yeah. just to provide just a little bit of perspective, uh, Tim's talking about the origins of a, of a movie that I had the pleasure <laughs> of watching the other night called the house we lived in. Um, and it's his latest creation or among his latest creations. Uh, and definitely want to hone in on that, but we're in there now. So, you know, let's continue talking ab about that. It, um, it, yeah. It's a, it's a complicated story too. Cause you're asking, you know, the question is like, how did ESPN get your attention? Well, you know, I'll, I'll skip ahead. I kept filming and it made a little, video for my dad once he got out of the hospital to kind of like, it was a benefit, right? There's lots of bills. So we had a benefit of like 600 people and I showed the film. It's called No Quit. It was the motto that my dad and my whole family used to encourage my dad to keep going. Kind of a wrestler thing, kind of, you know, yep. tough and put it online. And then, you know, it started getting shared and, and a lot of views. And then um, one day I got a call from an ESPN producer and they were like, your film is uh, I just had a meeting with a bunch of a bunch of producers at ESPN. Every single person was was crying by the end of it, and they want to make a follow up version of No Quit. Would you be okay with that? Of course. Uh, How know, did was, the producer find that was it? Amazing. Um, so the brain injury community uh, is is also kind of tight. Uh, the same thing with wrestling community. So like, there happened to be uh, a couple years before that a documentary about um, an MMA fighter. Uh, his name's Rad Martinez. Talk about a great name. Like, for, you know, his name's Rad Martinez. Super cool dude. And his dad had a, had a brain injury and he was, you know, he wrestled growing up and in college and then he became an MMA fighter and he takes care of his dad and competes. So um, Rad saw our film and then shared it with the ESPN um, producer. So, wow. you know, and he, you know, we, me and Rad chatted and he was really supportive and uh, brain injuries, you don't know. Like it's, uh, somebody could have a brain injury and nothing happens, you know, even a, 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 a like a big impactful on your brain um, and you have no signs of it. And then there's other folks that have, it's a small, I, I hate, I don't, I don't have the medical terms, but you know, it's not as large of an injury and it sure. creates devastating 
dating effects. Um, you know, and, and so it, they really don't know much. And, you know, this is Spalding. This is the, one of the top hospitals for brain injuries in the world. And I have the neurologist telling me that we just don't know. We don't know. And this is the, you know, these are the people, right? And so um, I think uh, you get a lot of folks calling, calling out when, when, when you're in that. Uh, because, um, you don't know, you just don't know. So any previous experiences from people are, are super helpful. Right. Uh, so yeah, so, you know, ESPN ended up putting that on, uh, they filmed with us and they kind of took my footage and mixed it in with some of the new stuff that they shot. Uh, and then that happened again for a film, uh, called Danimal's Army about a local Bridgewater kid who had, a, um, a speech disorder. I made a film and the same thing kind of happened. They called me up and said, Hey, you know, we'd, we'd love to, to pick it up. So, um, I got, yeah, I was lucky to work with ESPN a few how, times. How did, how did, um, uh, did you say Danimal's order? Uh, Danimal's army. Uh, yeah, okay. okay. Danny. Army. Yeah. He, he's a really cool young dude, uh, who had speech apraxia and, um, what is that? so it's like, you know, like, a lot of words are kind of mixed up and uh, it's kind of like a lower um, gravelly kind of voice. And okay. if you have the right speech therapy um, early on, you, there's plenty of folks who had that growing up that you'd, you'd never know. But if it doesn't get dealt with, uh, it can be devastating to the point where you can't communicate. Um, nobody can understand you. So Danny um, having speech apraxia, you know, kind of stood out a little bit. He was six years old at the time. And so he, on top of having speech apraxia, he was like this old soul who wore like a fifties suit to school every single day. Um, oh, and in yeah, like a top hat and, yes, uh, yes. and he was, you know, the, the, uh, his older brother played peewee football. And so he would be on the sidelines as kind of a, uh, a coach, you know, they called him the water coach. And one day, you know, there's a couple of days where he got picked on a lot. And so the, the peewee football team heard about it. And so they all decided to wear suits to school. And just this really cool way of like, you know, not yelling at the other kids, but just showing that Danny. Uh, Solidarity. Is a, cool, is a cool dude. Solidarity. So we, we followed him and um, got to hang out with his family, uh, the O'Keefe's. And, um, you know, they're, they're just great. It was just a great story. And, you know, it, it's been neat. Social media is kind of cool. Cause like a lot of the subjects that I've been lucky to, to get to know and make films on you know, they're growing up. So, you know, Danny's right. like, I don't know, he's like 12 or something, 12, 11, 12 years old and doing great. So, uh, you know, I got to see him kind of grow up a little bit. And, uh, be a part so when of I, when I, uh, the films of yours that I have seen, um, what comes across uh, kind of reoccurring themes or, or motifs, there's, there's definitely an element of, I would say, wounded masculinity or challenges that kind of almost archetypical masculine figures are called upon to overcome. And, you know, I'm thinking particularly about uh, some of the amazing films that you've made centering on the stories of, of uh, military veterans individuals that are coming, uh, overcoming and having to grapple with, uh, severe physical limitations, uh, and sometimes psychological limitations or both as a byproduct of their military service. But they too, at least in the, my interpretation of the film, those individuals to me too, felt a real connection between who they were and sort of this 
motion-driven athletics, like the, the vibrancy of their identity of themselves as athletes and as particularly masculine, you know, athletes mm. is challenged and is almost remade or reborn. That's my take. Yeah. No, thanks, man. That, that's, that's great to hear that you get that, you know, and yeah, I don't know. Like sometimes you, you wonder for us, um, filmmakers have a range of going after stories. You know, I know filmmakers who read, you know, NPR and the, the New Yorker, uh, and sort of search for stories sometimes related to a specific things. So you know, it could be coming from all different angles. Uh, there's filmmakers who stick with a particular path. You know, I'm going to make sports docs, um, historical, you know, there's all these different categories. And for us, it's always been some personal connection and it's spanned a lot of different genres. Uh, I think, you know, you come back to some of those masculine stories because, uh, yeah, it's embarrassing <laughs> how that's sort of portrayed in America in some ways. Say more uh, about that. How, uh, how it's just, imba- I mean, like, I don't know, man. Uh, growing up in, you know, I was born in the early 80s and um, that masculine figure that we all kind of grew up with in that, that uh, span of time is uh, not a good person uh, uh, for the popular sort of masculine persona. Sure. Kind of a kind of an asshole, if I can say that. Yeah. But anyways, um, I, you know, you just keep finding these people who, um, demystify or debunk or whatever, you know, they're the big, strong, you know, cage fighter and, uh, you know, they're caring father or, you know, um, a thoughtful civilian who, um, has, uh, has very different views than what you think of that person. And, you You know, know, I think one of the things that kind of comes across is it's the, it's the separating of the sort of the cartoonish version of masculinity versus the the character the the masculinity that is imbued with certain um just ageless masculine traits around you know inner strength and outer strength but it's the outer strength is going to fail you sooner or later it's going to fail you so you need to be able to draw upon the inner strength and that drawing upon the inner strength to access uh, that outer strength comes through for me, at least in everything that you've done that I have seen. Thank you. That, uh, that means a lot. You know, I, I found like, uh, I mean, it's a great, again, it's going back to what we were originally talking about. It's a great time to be making films because now we have so many different examples and conduits to meet each other. Um, you see a lot of films about folks that have been misrepresented, whether in the mass media or just over time. And I find so many commonalities between all these groups that you typically wouldn't put into one category. You know, I think the first thing that comes to mind is sort of the the modern, the contemporary American veteran. Um, and I've made a bunch of films. I made this film called Not a War Story, where it's a huge group of veterans that got together to make this weird, over-the-top, uh, zombie apocalypse film. So it's a movie yeah, so about a movie being made. <laughs> just to give the folks a little, folks listening a little bit of context. Essentially, your movie is about the making of this other movie, yeah. correct? Totally, and totally. Uh, yeah, it's it's got this amazing cast, 
And yeah. it's one of those casts where if you didn't know the characters' names, you know, you, 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 know, you look at the, um, uh, you even look at the trailer of the film and you're like, oh, I know that guy. Oh, that guy's in this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, uh, you know, the majority of the cast is veterans. Um, you know, it was one of these, uh, it was an Indiegogo. How, how, did that, how did that get on your radar? I, you know, I met, Jeez, uh, goes back to wrestling. I met a veteran. It was actually one of the first veterans I met. I never really, I mean, there's veterans in my life, but it's not like it was growing up. I didn't have a, a ton of people in the military that were, that were surrounding me. So I think it was like, it was just after making George wrestling with the resistance. I was still teaching. So trying to figure out, you know, what I was doing. And uh, I was following a, a UFC fighter and I was in North Carolina. And, you know, it was a classic kind of documentary work that we all do. And that hasn't changed, you know, like I scraped together some money, flew down to Charlotte. I didn't even have a place to stay. I stayed on the, the UFC fighters floor uh, <laughs> one night. You know, it was nice enough to be like, yeah, you can crash at the hotel with me. I didn't have a ticket to the UFC fight that I was trying to smuggle a camera into. Amazing. <laughs> uh, and you know, like, you know, like things have changed a little bit, but like, you know, when you make documentaries, you don't have like, at least at the beginning, right. you don't have any funding. So you're just trying to like, I can crash at this person's house. Well, you know, it's just like a, it's like a weird road trip, you know? But anyway, so, uh, in the parking lot, don't have a UFC ticket. Uh, happen to talk to this guy, Nick. He's like, I'll get you a ticket. <laughs> uh, I own a veteran, you know, military brand. Uh, I've got a bunch of free tickets. I'm going to give you one. You seem like a cool dude. And then we hung out all night. And then the next day, and, um, you know, he turned out to be this guy, Nick Palmashano, who started Ranger Up. It was the first ever military apparel brand. And they did a lot more than just make t-shirts. It was a community. And uh, he got together with a bunch of other veterans who were kind of in the business world. And they were just sick of uh, the typical veteran film, you know, the, the war hero, war god who's, you know, uh, invincible and the PTSD, alcoholic, um, violently ridden, you know, veteran who can't help himself. Yep. And obviously the majority of folks are way in the middle. Uh, and the movie centers around dark humor, which is like the most common thing. And so at the time I was making that film and then we just started working on a new project. Me and John Mercer is like my creative partner. We, you know, we've always worked together. All the films, like we help each other, you know, in, in various ways. At this point, we started working together more on a, you know, we're co-directing and co-producing stuff. And this film, the, the film was called Life Without Basketball. That ended up taking four and a half years, but it was kind of overlapped a little bit. And, you know, it was following Bill Keese Abdul Qadir, the first Muslim American uh, b-baller to, to play with a job. So she wore... Uh, headscarf. Um, she's basically like a swim cap, uh, you know, when she played and she couldn't play pro because there was a rule blocking her. And so, you know, we've been pro working with would have been the, uh, uh, WNBA. Yeah. Anything, um, you know, European leagues, uh, you know, it's FIFA is the governing body and they kind of make the rules just like FIFA for soccer. I think that's the most most people know that one. Yes. Um, and so, you know, we're hanging out with veterans and then it was, we jumped into the American Muslim community and you just kept seeing these commonalities, you know, um, we we're lucky cause we we're with Bill Keys and Bill Keys was loved and respected. So, you know, it would be in, um, random mosque or community center in Cincinnati, for instance, and would show up and we knew we're two white guys, you know, we're not, uh, part of Islam. We're not, you know, we're, we're tourists, you know, and, and, but we really care. We, I mean, 
we spent a lot of time at the Abdul Qadir home and, um, you know, we're lucky to be sort of extended family. That's how they kind of say to us. So I, and I take that with a lot of honor, but, uh, but anyway, so, you know, Bill Keith's, so, you know, kind of explained who we were and immediately they were like, come on in. And I think, you know, a lot of these communities, I probably had to do a bit more explaining before I got the invite, but you know, once, once they kind of knew who we were and what we were about, it was so welcoming, but you see these common factors between the veteran community and the, the Muslim American community. And that is, uh, loyal. Uh, that is, um, you know, diligent, uh, hardworking, um, routine, you know, uh, if you're praying five times a day, it, it's similar in a lot of ways to how veterans have been trained, how, how the military has been trained, you've trained this way. Right. And, and, and the other thing is they've been misrepresented, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a common thing. You, you see that bond, you know, um, and you're always trying to take care of each other and you, you uh, it, it's a different feeling, you know, uh, as a white dude, I don't, uh, have that feeling, um, at all. Uh, but to walk out your door and to have that nervous thing that something might happen, something might be said to me, uh, that's a different experience. Um, and that happens in both, both groups. Uh, and so anyways, you know, as a filmmaker, you, you get to jump into these wonderful worlds and then you start to see all these things. Uh, that, that and I think also in 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 both of these instances, um, you were sort of invited in and and welcomed in, and that has to be there's a huge degree of trust involved there. So you you guys are putting out something that these relatively insular groups are they're trusting the um, uh, the intentions of, of an outsider yeah. such as yourself. I think, uh, you know, Michael, like documentaries have become so much more popular. You're seeing more and more, um, of these stylized documentaries, whether you want to call them a documentary or not, that, that's a different conversation, but you know, you're seeing all this happen. Right. And so there's lots of folks out there that make documentaries for, um, financial gain. And me and John are very lucky that we have commercial work locally um, and so we, our company is set up so that we can always bounce back, bounce back and forth between the commercial work and the documentary work. I didn't leave teaching to become a filmmaker, to make money off of my documentary work. I know what I'm sort of signing up for when yep. I make films. Um, and so I think that helps because I really give a shit. I really care. I want to know these people. I want to know, I have questions, um, whether I'm an insider or not, if it's a wrestling film or, you know, a a world that I'm not a part of, I'm curious. And, you know, if that's the intention, if you're there because you care, if, you know, the camera, um, isn't the fixation, if the fixation, if the, if the, if the real connection is human to human, you know, like that's, that's different. That's a different experience. The camera is just the conduit in that, yeah. in that instance. And, and the, the commitment that you're making is also, uh, there's such a time commitment involved. I mean, each of these stories are, uh, you know, life, uh, life after basketball was how many years do you, do you follow Bill Keeson? Four and a half, four and a half years. Yeah. <laughs> and we didn't, we didn't know the ending. Like everyone would be like, okay, so, uh, 
let's, uh, you know, go to pitch competitions and, uh, you know, or just talk it. And, you know, to me, to me and John, the film was much more about, um, if she's going to play and that's the, that's the typical question. So, you know, is the rule change or any, you know, all that. And, uh, that's not it. You're missing it. If, if you watch life without basketball and you are just waiting for her to turn pro and, you know, win the game and, that's that's not the point. She wasn't allowed to play a game that was her identity because she wore a swim cap because right. of an archaic rule. Right. Uh, that does something different to your identity. Um, playing pro at the end, you know, after whatever it was three and a half years, she was sidelined. That doesn't erase that. What happened to her identity? You know, um, and living in a in a in a world that allows that to happen. That's, in these multi-year, multi-year film projects, um, how are you editing? Uh, are you, <laughs> you know, are you, do you sit down, you know, like we're going to, I want to talk about the house we lived in in a moment. Um, but, you know, in the instance of that, you know, do you sit down periodically and say, all right, well, here's four years worth of footage. Where, what do we got? <laughs> oh man. How talk about anxiety. Holy cow. Um, that would be rough, you know? Yeah, uh, I would think. <laughs> so like, you know, me and John, so we'll, you know, back up like when we first met um, Bill Keys and hung out with her that first weekend, you know, the goal was to make a three minute film. Uh, it was, it. <laughs> you know, let's, let's follow you coaching. She was coaching at Indiana state. This is sort of interesting. She's on the sideline, you know, there's the whole, she's just at this point sort of finding out that she's not going to be able to play pro you know, uh, cool family, you know, like the first weekend we're there, put down cameras, sit down, have dinner with us. Um, you know, just wonderful people. And, uh, anyways, um, we, you know, we knew we had to do some, some work in the interim, you know, as the months went on and we started thinking, well, maybe this is longer and, you know, we're ending almost the first year. Uh, of, 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 uh, you know, coverage. Um, we, you know, the whole time we're sort of reviewing footage, of course, like most filmmakers will know that experience, especially documentary filmmakers know you're traveling, you shot for 14 hours. Now you got to load footage, charge batteries, and then somehow check the footage. Right. So you're already putting it in premiere. You're already sort of scanning, you know, and then getting ready for the next day. And that's, you know, just adds up. And so we kept having this thing where, you know, a couple months would go by and then would do sort of a, a check-in and would cut a scene, you know, or would cut this thing. Yep. Um, and after two years, we already had a bunch of scenes and, and different things, not a deep dive though. We never put a film together. Um, but, um, we, we cut a short, uh, called FIBA allow a job after two years of, of filming. Um, in hopes of, of changing the rule. Um, and so we started that process of making a short film, which was a great um, exercise for the, the, the feature later on. And I think that short was like 14 minutes long. Um, and so, you know, that, that thing of cutting a short or trying to figure out some of the moments, um, you know, within the first couple of years of filming, man, I, you know, there is a balance of sort of forgetting in some ways what you shot, like that's a, like a very, um, that's so important because you have all these biased, um, sort of feelings 
Yep. You know, we've all had that experience on a shoot where, man, that was so cool. Like this moment and you just experienced it different. It might've right. been something in between takes or it might've been, I don't know. It just felt so good. And then you get there and you look at the footage, you're like, that wasn't what I thought it was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Right. And so yeah. like, there is, um, there is this thing of allowing enough time to have passed staying on the footage, but then this nice balance of like, um, seeing it with fresh eyes. Sure. You know? uh, so in the, in the, I would say particularly, or perhaps particularly in the instance of the, uh, the, the, the film about your dad, the house we lived in, the cut that I watched, uh, the other night, uh, how close to finished is that? The house we lived in is a 10 year long, uh, uh, project that started with, you know, the film we talked about earlier, no quit. And, you know, the film No Quit uh, focused on my dad sort of recovering from a brain injury. Um, at Spalding, there was a bunch of people who said that was one of the more miraculous recoveries they've seen because his, his actual brain injury was one of the worst brain injuries that they've seen. So his, when they opened his skull up, the blood hit the ceiling because the pressure was that large. Amazing. Did the... Uh, fall caused the brain injury or did he have a brain injury and then fall? The fall caused the brain injury. Um, he just woke up, fainted, fell. Um, and the reason that he was able to, you know, there's all, all these factors, but my mom called 911 and they got him to a hospital in New Hampshire where the neurosurgeon was just leaving. And so Dr. Wynn performed, you know, a craniotomy, uh, within an hour and a half of him falling, which is not the case typical for, for a brain injury. So, you know, this, you know, you make this film, it was this great experience, you know, um, it was, it was important for my family. Uh, it was such a bizarre time where just one day things just changed. Uh, and so I kept filming after that and, you know, it's not the, the movie ending, right? It's, uh, we all want that. You know, I think we all struggle with it as filmmakers, you know, like you, you want to just have an ending to a film and then we're just fine. We're just okay. And so that's not the case. <laughs> you know, you, that's not the case. Your dad and, you know, probably all of your family, but particularly your dad in the film is, um, you know, he's, de he's depicted in some very vulnerable um, scenarios where, you know, I mean, he's vulnerable beyond his control to not be vulnerable. What did, what was your thinking around, or did you ever have to kind of wrestle, no pun intended, um, with what's too much? What's, you know, what's, what's, what's fair to him? What's fair to the story? Yeah. I mean, it's hard, right? Like, uh, ethically, um, so my dad has a brain injury, his brain injury affected him in that he doesn't no longer has that many filters. He'll say inappropriate things. Um, there was a period of time where he cried, um, all, just all the time. It's yeah. like, I'm talking like hysterical crying. And then there was a point in time when he would laugh. It's a common thing within the first couple of years of brain injury. Yeah. Some folks are, um, left permanently with that. Um, my dad luckily sort of hit a period where he switched over and he, that no longer was a thing. But, um, even if a subject tells you it's okay to film, that doesn't necessarily mean it's okay to film. 
Right. Uh, you need to have judgment. Um, you need to know if it's a subject who has impairments. You need to look to parents, siblings, friends, you know, and make that decision because that that is a choice as a filmmaker you need to figure out. Um, with this, I never questioned anything. Um, I definitely, I definitely questioned moments early on in the ICU. I didn't know, you know, in the first moments of him waking up and just, you know, he couldn't move. He, the only way to communicate was blinking. You know, those were moments where, but like, as it went on and the crying, I mean, those moments where he's breaking down, you know, and my whole family for that matter, there's plenty of moments where I, I was filming something and I'm crying or you know, some people crying everywhere. Right. Um, and, uh, you need to see that, uh, you know, my dad, his goal now is to help other families, uh, that have gone through this other, um, traumatic brain injury survivors, any other brain injury survivors. So, uh, that's part of the process, you know, and, uh, he, he, he was cool with letting me do that. During this nine or 10 year period, um, would you say the entire family stayed on the same page around the, the creation of the film? Yeah, um, definitely. Like when, you know, you asked me earlier, I didn't answer your question. <laughs> Where am I at? It, you know, we're, we're pretty much locked. You know, I was bringing up some of the emotional side of things because, um, I'm in a place now where I'm a lot more, um, emotionally able, um, capacity is probably the word, but I also know I'm sort of dancing with fire. So, you know, there's lots of footage that are, um, deeply disturbing for me. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, my, my dad doesn't remember us growing up. He knows who we are, but he doesn't like remember me as a kid, basically the first 20 ish years of my life. And it all kind of goes back to this house that we lived in. You know, we moved to Hudson. It wasn't just a move. We moved from like apartment to apartment to apartment. My dad had, had gotten a job that you know, we, we kind of moved up to the middle class, right? And I'll just kind of go there, right? And we had an actual house. So it was our first house, you know, like an actual house that we, my dad actually, you know, they bought, you know, which was very like, that's, that's not a thing that everyone gets. And that's you and your three siblings and, yeah. your, and your dad. Yeah. Yeah. And we moved to Hudson and it's just like, you know, kind of like Amesbury in a little way, you know, kind of like Pleasantville, everyone's happy. It was a nice, it was a wonderful upbringing. And so my dad, um, and this, I don't want to say this all, um, stems from his gambling. But my dad, you know, um, was an alcoholic. Every, he had an, he has this addictive personality. Uh, quit drinking, you know, had quit all these things, smoking this, that, the other thing. But gambling has always been a part of his life. He loves the horse track, you know. And I grew up going to the Rockingham track. If anybody locals, you know that in Salem, New Hampshire, it's no longer. But uh, uh, multiple days a week as a five, six year old going there, and it it wasn't bad. It wasn't a bad experience. I don't have these memories. My dad's gambling never got to the point where it, you know, we didn't have food or this or that. You know, your, mo your mom yeah. goes into that really, I think, really compassionately uh, she, in the in, in the film, and and yeah, it, it, at least in what you captured, pretty non-judgmentally, also. Totally, man. Like uh, it's it, she's a she's a saint, Saint Gail, is my mom. <laughs> but uh, you know she. She, she had to go through addiction with my dad and, uh, it's, it's tough, you know, it's it, sometimes it's, there's a lot of gray with things, but you know, at, at a certain point, my dad, uh, his business weren't, wasn't doing well. And we knew the, the inevitable end of this house was coming. So, you know, there are already 
extended with the bank at this point. Um, and it was at the point right before my dad's accident that there, the house was being foreclosed on. So it wasn't the brain injury. It wasn't the, the, the incident that, that caused it, but literally like my dad's in the ICU and there was papers delivered for the house. Like they had to get kicked. They were out of the house. Like we knew that was coming. Yeah. And it happened at the same time. And so my dad starts to recover. And, you know, while my dad's recovering, we're trying to scramble, get my family, you know, my parents into a new place and we're moving everything out of the house. And my dad's coming too. And he just doesn't remember the house. And, you know, what at, at the time it's like, okay, well, he didn't know how to walk. He didn't know how to talk, but he slowly regained that thing. And so it was just common. All of us were like, it's going to come back. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's like you're, uh, it's bound to happen. Once he gets out of the hospital and starts seeing things, it'll come back. Well, it never did. You know, so going back to uh, finishing the film, I'm at a place where, you know, I can't spend too much time with the film because it is problematic for me. Um, It is, you know, art can be therapeutic but you can also run the risk of hurting yourself. Uh, And that I use that with a grain of salt. Like there's plenty of films that we probably spend too much time on and it isn't good for us. You know, there's this nice balance. Um, So, uh, you know, after 10, you know, I'm coming up on 10 years, so I keep saying 10 years. So after, you know, this span of time, um, you know, me and my wife decided that, you know, I need to put this down. Uh, and you know, in a lot of ways, I finally feel happy with it. You know, uh, I called it the pain project forever. And now it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's the, the project that I always dreamed about making. It's this avant-garde kind of balance with storyline, hopefully, um, uh, deep dive into, to memory, into, um, the family dynamic addiction in some ways. Yeah, I think that you, in, when very early on in our conversation today, you referenced the role of um, art in the uh, kind of the extraction of memory, the preservation of memory, the interpretation of memory. And that comes across so fully in the house we lived in. Uh, and I thought it was a, a really cool decision that you made to cast a younger version of yourself, a, a, um, um, how old is that kid supposed to be? About eight, nine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> talk, talk, talk about that a little bit. And, and, and what role that played in advancing the story and, and kind of allowing you to go someplace that a, um, you know, kind of a cinema verite approach necessarily wouldn't. Totally. I've, uh, I, you know, I, Everyone has, I think, opinions on this thing of if you're a documentary filmmaker, you, you probably have an opinion about shooting in a verite manner, uh, shooting in an interview setup, shooting, you know, a mixture, historical, whatever. Like everyone has kind of their idea of what a documentary is. Well, that has changed quite a bit in the last 10 years for me. When I first started this project, it was only, you know, fly on the wall. And then at some point I said, ah, I want to sit down with my family. So I did a round of interviews you know, and so it kept changing, it kept changing. And, um, all of a sudden I, I, you know, I've always done this projection thing. I love, I I love what happens when you have multiple projectors 
intertwined, you know, so the image is kind of blended. And then there's a, there's an object in the room, whether it's a person. So all of a sudden I was bringing my dad into these projection rooms with three, four projectors and, um, yeah, it's therapeutic too. It's in those instances, in those instances, um, when you're, and, and it's, it's really powerfully depicted because the images are playing off a screen, but your dad is between the screen and the camera. So the images are reflecting off of him also. Um, and, and his presentation uh, is pretty, um, uh, it's unmistakable. His, his presentation, he, he seems kind of lost in those, in those shots, almost in this maze of memory. Totally. Uh, totally. And was, were you directing him that way? No, I mean, like, you know, a lot of it was, hey, uh, at the opening of the film, you hear me say, you know, you're going to walk down here and you're going to take a left and get in front of the screen. And so there's a little directions on like the logistics, but like. Um, there's no, there's, there, there was no, you, you weren't directing any uh, emotional recall. No, no. Behalf. I mean, it, it's also like, honestly, Michael, like it's been, I mean, some of the footage is really fresh. I mean, we shot during the pandemic, um, masks, distant. My dad was the only one without a mask. Um, you know, even then, and I'm being honest, I mean, I'm being honest with you. Uh, it's also a practice of trying to hit for him to get those memories back. Yeah. Sure. And so if, if I, you know, if I just had the one image that he sees and, you know, and I know that's not going to happen, but part of that experimental visual is also rooted in me you know, just wanting to, to bring them back. Um, and so, oh yeah. And so like, you know, with that, it's like years went on and I started, started changing the way I thought about documentaries. And, you know, part of this whole thing is again, you know, maybe it goes back to the ICU room where, you know, I have an iPhone and I'm, I'm just passing the buck, honestly, it's going to be painful later. Um, and I kept passing the buck filming and eventually it caught up um, psychologically. And, you know, what was happening and I wasn't telling anybody, and this is years was I was having reoccurring dreams about the house and I was having them once a week. Um, and, and three, four ish years go by. And I finally mentioned it to my wife, Allison, and, you know, it's shocking for her, you know? And, and so we, we talked and, you know, and, uh, eventually, you know, I had counseling before, um, for, for other things, you know, um, and, you know, I was lucky enough to, to say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to jump back on the therapy train as I call it. I think of it as sort of, um, as physical therapy, you know, I think of therapy as, you know, uh, I'm having problems, you know, it's starting to show up and here's this great solution, you know? So, so, uh, therapy has been kind of part of this film. Um, and you know, it wasn't the therapist, uh, you know, I think Allison, my wife, her encouragement of writing down a dream journal. So I started writing these dreams down and, you know, it was probably about year five or six of the film where me and Allison sort of said, well, what if we play it out? Uh, and it's actually kind of a common practice in people with post-traumatic stress, um, where you act out the thing, the root of, um, the, the trauma you've experienced to just go through it and close the gap in your brain. Interesting. 
And so, um, yeah, so, you know, I went through this weird process of casting my entire family and we found all these actors, um, that really looked and, and, and talked like my family and the, we picked three dreams and, um, you know, we ran them out and some of them were very like goofy. Like they're not like, so a lot of them are in the film. There's this one where it's like, you know, I'm driving and then I'm randomly at the house and then my mom comes out with a cheese platter. And she's like, Timmy, take the cheese platter. And I'm like, ma, I don't want any cheese, you know? And it's just like, like you, you wake up and you're like, you, it's so hits you so deep. And then you tell your friend, you're like, dude, like, why you t- like, I hate when you talk about your dreams cause they're boring, you know? Uh, but like, there's just something there. And so, so anyway, so, uh, I also like changed the way I think about footage. So, uh, you know, I was making these things about dreams and the actor, the young boy who, who, who's playing me in the film, I had a dream, but my, I had one dream about my dad when he was a boy, uh, the, the dreams were always the same. They're at the house, you know, but they had this one dream that we wrote up and had this kid actor. So what started as the young boy playing my dad ended up in the edit, um, being me. Um, and oh, so, All right. you know, again, like the flexibility in an edit to be able to allow yourself to make those decisions, as long as they're ethical, you know, in some ways, like it, it, it's been a, um, it's been a great, um, creative project to figure out those, those things that you typically don't get to do, uh, in other projects. Well, it's a, it's such a brave movie and it's really beautiful in a lot of difficult ways. But I think it's also, it's such a testament to you and your whole family too. Uh, you know, you're certainly your dad included in the sense that the, the coming together, the staying together, and you know, it's not some movie of the week where I'm not going to speak of endings or anything like that, but it, you know, it's not, it, it, there's not, you, you don't have your act one, two, three, four story arc necessarily, right? But there's just this sense of, mutual support and encouragement, even through, you know, setbacks or disappointments or just incomprehension. So hats off. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it feels good to be done with it. And it's been like a good process for the whole family. And, um, we got to do, you know, all the things, uh, I I just feel like I get to do all the things and I feel like I can be at peace with it. And, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's good you know, hopefully there's, there's, um, families and, um, uh, brain injury survivors and, you know, people that experience trauma or anything, you know, I think there's a lot of relatable things that can, can watch us and, Most you know, definitely. um, and help. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned, uh, you filmed a portion of the house we lived in during the pandemic. And I also happen to know that you've been ironically super busy during the <laughs> pandemic, doing a lot of commercial work. Talk a little bit about that before we wrap things up. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, what a crazy time. What a crazy year. What just, wow. Uh, March rolled around and, you know, I think all of us, um, you know, filmmakers have, um, experienced this in, in, in a range of ways. You know, I know filmmakers who are, working primarily on bigger budget projects, uh, you know, things where there's 50, 60 people on set. And unfortunately, you know, that industry has been hit extremely hard. Um, and then there's folks like me who are, um, you know, we, we can operate in a small footprint way. Yeah. Ironically, we ended up 
getting more projects um, as of late um, because of the, you know, the, that kind of scenario, I think. But back in March, you know, for everyone, I feel like, you know, uh, most creatives, like from March to about, you know, the end of June, you know, or mid-June, there's not a lot going on. So um, me, John, me, so me and John Mercer have a, a company called Pixella Pictora Films. And it's just a small group of filmmakers. And, you know, we had been working on, you know, the house we lived in and two other films. And so it was a nice moment to just kind of pause and um, finish up projects, uh, go back into the edit. You know, uh, you can't go out and shoot, but you can, you can edit. So we, we somehow ended up finishing three um, or getting close to finishing uh, three feature length documentaries uh, that had been filmed over time multiple years. Um, the other two stories are veteran related. Uh, one's on Mike Schlitz, who's a double arm amputee. Uh, 85% of his body was burned. The neat thing about Mike is, you know, he's a veteran advocate now and uh, an amazing dude. But you meet Mike for five minutes and you just forget that he has all these wounds. Yeah, uh, I think the film kind of focuses on what does that like, how does, you know, the term disability, um, how it can shift quite a bit from your perspective. You know, I often have to remember to give my friends a head up, heads up about Mike the first time they meet him because it's just Mike. He's, I don't know. He's, he's awesome. <laughs> he's a great dude. So, so that film kind of explores that, you know, uh, and then there's this other film called tougher than a tank. We followed a, a Marine veteran who ran 145 miles in three days. Day yeah. one was 70 miles. Day two was 50. Yeah. And he's, 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 uh, reuniting with a veteran who's a similar, you know, to, to Mike in some ways where he's, um, physically, uh, wounded and visibly wounded. Whereas Noah, the main subject running, um, doesn't have any visible wounds, but he has plenty of um, PTSD and, and sort of quote unquote invisible wounds, if you want to call it that. And it's sort of this cool reconnection between the two. Um, so we all just, just, I don't know, like maybe going back to like the theme of like, you know, using the camera, using filmmaking to sort of uh, as a, as a coping mechanism during all this time, or yeah. just to block it out in some ways, you know? And, um, and so, you know, all that was going on. We're, we're super pumped about having three films and we're going to be submitting to festivals for 2021. Um, but also like we, we got a lot of commercial work, which was great. Um, we're, we're getting to work with Sam Adams, um, you know, make uh, beer little web videos. And, uh, you know, that's been a lot of fun. It's been so different from some of the more emotional projects that we've worked on that it's been really refreshing to sort of jump to that, you know, have direction from folks and then jump back to the independent stuff. And then you sort of bring something else with you. And and that just keeps going back and forth. And that's why I'll always do both commercial and independent work, no matter what sort of the the outcome is for us. Do you Um, find that, do you find that doing the commercial work uh, forces you to call upon different aspects of your talent as a filmmaker storyteller. Oh, totally. Yeah. Like when you have direction and, you know, maybe a, a marketing team or somebody kind of directing you. Um, yeah, it's like collaborative, like just working with a brand vision and, you know, all these other things and sort of sol- solving the problem. Uh, versus, you know, a film where there's a story, there's a subject or whatever it is you're, you're, you're making a, in the independent landscape. Uh, and there's just so much more freedom, right? Which can be great or also can be 
problematic. Um, yeah, because with all of that freedom comes a responsibility too. Right, right, right. So, I mean, I like going back and forth, you know, and that's always been kind of the case um, for us, uh, sort of how we, we find a way to do all these, these projects. In the commercial work, like the, the spots that I've seen that you've done for Sam Adams during the pandemic, um, are, are, you're the shooter. Is that correct? Or did you shoot those? Yeah. So like most of the stuff we do, it's a small footprint. So every now and then we'll have like, you know, a sound engineer on board to, to do some sound recording. Um, sometimes there's a second shooter. Um, because of the pandemic, there's been a bunch of projects where it's just me doing sound and a couple cameras and interviewing, um, which is like uh, also great, you know, because uh, a lot of times that happens in the documentary space where it's just you you know, you're making this project, you're operating camera, you're asking questions, you're listening to sound. So, um, what a great tool, right. To be able to bring to com- the commercial side. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah. And then, and then, you know, we have, um, an awesome team. So, uh, Sam old Meadow, you met, uh, Sam's, uh, from England and we're lucky enough to meet and get to work to, with each other. And so uh, Sam does a, the primary editing. Uh, he's like the lead editor. I'll jump in every now and then, but you know, it's mostly Sam and he's super duper creative and, and similar. He, you know, he's co-editor of House We Lived In. Um, he's lead editor on uh, Tougher Than a Tank. So similarly as me and John, um, everyone we work with uh, at um, Pixella, you know, gets to work on both documentary and commercial work. Um, so, uh, he's, you know, but he's just like light years ahead of me, uh, with editing, you know, younger and just, uh, and, and an awesome soul too. A good person. A magician. Yes, yes, definitely. Tim, uh, tell the listeners where they can find both your commercial and documentary work sort of in one, um, uh, you know, one, one place, one, one website. For sure. Yeah. So yeah, if you go to pixelapictorafilms.com, you can find all our films. And so we just, we just recently had Life Without Basketballs on Hulu now, uh, Not a War Story and Life Without Basketball on our, uh, Amazon Prime. Um, and then there's a bunch of short films uh, that are, you know, on Vimeo and other outlets. So yeah, check it out. There's a, you know, a bunch of films on there. And then if you go to pixelapictora.com, that's our commercial arm. Uh, just got, you know, a bunch of commercial stuff. Um, but yeah, man, this, is, this has been so nice, Michael. I, you know, you don't get to, to talk about the creative as much, you know, a lot of times both of us are kind of head in the ground working and uh, it's just nice to pop up and talk about things and, and, you know, in some ways kind of crystallize some of the things that are in your head. Um, yeah, no, it's, it, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, I always uh, so much enjoy uh, talking to you to get a sense of what the impetus is, the drive behind uh, these films and the, and the, it's just the really captivating, engaging stories that you're telling. And I know that we'll be, we'll be talking again, if not in this venue, in another one. So thanks so much for your time. And, uh, we will talk soon. Thanks, Michael. Come over to my backyard. All right. Come, <laughs> come hang out. The distant hangs are, uh, I, I really appreciate it, man. And, uh, winter yeah, keep, is coming. Winter is coming. I'm going to, we're going to make a fire back there, a fire pit. Um, right. but, I'm, I'm uh, considering that an invitation. Yeah, but keep making films, everyone. Um, I hope every uh, creative has found things to stay occupied during this time. And uh, man, just keep working. Just keep making films. That's all we can do right now. Amen. 